and welcome to episode 111 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Michelle Asaro joining us. Michelle is a pediatric speech language pathologist and owner of Babbling Brook Speech and Language Therapy PLLC. Like so many others, her private practice began as an after-hour side gig, but her experiences along the way as a special education teacher, early intervention provider, feeding therapist, and mom have helped her to shape it into what it is today. Her practice brings a unique interdisciplinary, mindful, and sensory integrated approach to enhance feeding and communication skills in New York City. On top of seeing clients, Michelle is passionate about educating families on guiding proper oral facial development from infancy and how the world of tongue ties, airway, feeding, speech, and behavior are all connected. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. If you're listening to this on May 17th up through May 21st at midnight Eastern time, the doors to feedthepeds.com is now open. Feed the Peds is a foundations of pediatric feeding and swallowing. It's a comprehensive 12-week course to becoming a pediatric feeding therapist with a focus on early development. You get 40.5 hours or 4.05 ASHA and AOTA CEUs. This is for SLPs and OTs. So if you're looking to become a pediatric feeding therapist and you want to know how to assess and treat and get out there and do it, join us. Feed the Peds.com. Can't wait to see you in there. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm excited to chat with you. Hi, I'm so excited for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So before we jump in and have our little talks talk today, will you give us a little bit of a background about who you are and kind of how you fell into this space? So I am um, not by uh, choice, just kind of by my love of different things, um, kind of like a jack of all trades. So I actually uh, came out of school as a special education teacher, um, loved that field, loved everything about it. Um, and it kind of led naturally into me getting my master's in speech. So I have both degrees, both careers, um, and I love both. Um, so in terms of the speech world, I started out um, in early intervention and not wanting to leave the families that I was working with when, you know, the kind of state said that they had to. Um, so that's kind of where I branched off into private practice. Um, but in early intervention, I was doing a lot of um, feeding work as well. Um, so I just really fell in love with the space. That's amazing. I don't think a lot of people know this about me, but I started in the schools, like in the preschool program they had and was there for two years and then went into EI for one year for an infants and toddlers program. And from there actually was like burnt out, took a break and then went to private practice as well, because I was like, I really want to continue working with that age. But also I don't I, here in our County, they had cut it off around, it used to be five, then they backed it up to three. And I was like, Oh, I don't like I miss these babies. I want to follow some of them a bit longer. Like I really like the whole like birth to five age group. So yeah, it's it's such an amazing age group to work with. And that's so awesome that you know you were able to do feeding. They actually had mostly OTs doing feeding in early intervention when they I they have both. Yeah, yeah, they have both here. And it was there weren't a lot of speech therapists in the area that I was working who were doing feeding. 
Um, so one day they asked me and I kind of took it on as a challenge with a case that I was already seeing for speech. Um, so I said, let's figure it out together um, and threw myself into it. And it really, it took off from there. I really fell in love with it from there and it's been going well. I love it. I love it. So let's talk about tots. How did you, how did you fall into the tots arena? <laughs> So in the tots and the early intervention world, you know, I came across the very typical anterior Thai babies that could not move their tongue. Um, and I said, you know, at that point in that stage of my career, um, please go, you know, get that tongue tie clipped. Um, that's really impacting um, everything from feeding to speech. Um, at that time, you know, I had no training and didn't know what I was doing in terms of supporting that. Um, but having that knowledge over time and, and gradually stepping into some of these trainings, um, specifically Diane Barr, I fell in love with all of her work, um, yes, and yeah. all of her books, um, and reread her book probably six times while I was pregnant. <laughs> um, but the day it's really funny. One of the first like things I noticed about my son when he was born was his face and I'm, I'm staring at his mouth. And I said, <sighs> I said, shoot, I said, I said, he has tongue tie, but it was posterior. So I was still, you know, again, new mom, I'm totally in a daze. I don't know what's happening around me. Um, I'm not sure. Right. So I'm asking the pediatrician the, I think I asked the OB still in the delivery room. Um, <laughs> Somebody <selected>. identify this. And, you know, the hospital gag orders, nobody, nobody said anything, um, you know, oh, maybe, you know, maybe something, but I don't think that's what the issue is here. It's, it's you try nipple shield, try this. Um, and I, my mom is actually a, a pediatric um, PT in, a, in the NICU in a hospital Amazing. and she's had some patch training and she came over, you know, the day I got home and I said, mom, please, please look. And she's tether oh, oral tissue. She said, <laughs> and I said, yep. I said, I think so too. And the next day I had a IVCLC who was trained in ties um, come over and confirm it. And then we went through the process. Um, so we had his ties. Uh, he had upper lower lip and uh, posterior tie released at 10 days old. Nice. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about why I'm here um, and the kind of stress of it. But <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk, let's talk about this hot topic, right? Let's talk about how, um, I mean, obviously you had a mom who had a little bit of knowledge. You had some knowledge. It was maybe newish to you at the time, but still, at least you even, you were aware, right? You knew to look for it. You, you had somebody kind of within the family who could even help confirm it. Like, I think back to my poor mom, like that first night home from the hospital, like I was crying. The baby was crying. <laughs> we were all crying. My mom was like, Oh my, Oh man. Okay. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh yes. Oh yes. But you know, inter it was interesting that like your mom had that, that ties knowledge too. That's, that's amazing. That's really awesome. Yeah. She's, you know, and it's very interesting because she does a lot of like positioning for feeding and, and things like that. Um, she's been in the hospital for, for 20 years. She's actually retiring next month. Oh, um, congrats to her. Super exciting. But um, I knew a little bit, um, but I still, um, because I didn't know a lot, um, was that new mom on social media, right? Um, at least looking, I don't remember if I posted or I definitely didn't post a picture, um, but I was, you know, joining these groups and, and staring at what everyone else was, was writing and all this information, which is definitely a lot, you know, um, yeah, a lot to take in. Um, and then what was the funniest part about this whole process? And I say this all the time is 
having to communicate it like to somebody who doesn't know. So like me talking to my husband about like why we need to go to cranial sacral therapy right now. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you know, nothing is going to get better. Um, so that's really difficult. So I could imagine, you know, just me having to explain it to him has made me really think about how the lay person is getting this information um, from social media because it's all over social media. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's regular. a great point. That's a great point. I mean, I've had friends who text me and, you know, I've assessed their children. I recommend a treatment plan, yada, yada. And then they go, okay, help me explain this to my spouse. Like, how do I convince them or how do I explain to them how necessary this is? Because like, I get it. I know it's necessary, but I need them on board. <laughs> so like, so that's, that's a really good point. I, I don't know if that's ever even come up on this podcast, like how, one, it's just challenging enough to go into these groups because like you said, one, it's overwhelming. It's like a slap in the face with information Two, You don't know who to believe, what to believe, what's accurate, what's inaccurate. And then, you know, three, okay, let's say you do go for an eval. You have a great eval. You get a great treatment plan. It's like, okay, well now how do I, as the lay person, take all this overwhelming information that I do trust and relay it to a spouse or someone else who's involved in the medical decision-making, you know, for this child and, and also financial decision-making. I was just going to say, once they get on board with the medical, when you right, show the right. cost. Yes. The first question in my house is always, what does it cost? <laughs> like, what does it cost? That's, the bigger, that's the bigger argument every day, yeah. you know, to continue body work and body work is expensive. No one's, no one's covering it. Right. Um, insurance isn't covering it. And it is just super overwhelming and super, especially, you know, you're a new, new parents and you're, you add a financial struggle, you know, on top of uh, the financial struggle of a new baby. Um, it's yeah. very stressful. And um, that was probably, to be honest with you, that was probably the most stressful piece of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And it's, and it's interesting too, because I've actually had some, you know, SLPs and OTs go through my pediatric feeding course, right through feed the peds. And, you know, and some of them have even said, like, I'm here because I have a child who I need to help. And this is kind of throwing me into this space, like further down the rabbit hole. Like I want to understand the tots, the myo component for under five, you know, under four years of age. I want to understand the feeding component. I want to understand like, how do I even assess my own child? And like, where do we go next? And, and yes, they're getting evals too, but they also just want to learn for themselves and be, and a lot of them end up falling into this space and further down the rabbit hole and start working with the patients themselves, which is amazing. But we've had so many conversations surrounding this and it's really eye-opening because while I'm, I'm a parent who went through a lot of this too, I didn't identify my daughter's tongue tie until she was 24 months old. So I was like out of that newborn stage for her with my second one, I went into it kind of thinking like, all right, we know genetically, like the genetics are stacked against us here. So she probably is going to have one. Like, I'll be really glad if she doesn't, but let's just anticipate that she will. So going into it, it was a different story because I kind of was like, all right, here we go. Like, let's go down this roller coaster. Um, but I knew, and I was aware, and I think that changed the story a little bit too. And you know, the financial piece is a big consideration. Like you're already taking on a new human who is going to require a lot of money, right. To just keep them all. We joke like as moms, like, Oh, I did a good job today. until everybody's alive. We're good. Okay, great. Day was a success, you know? Um, but yeah, the financial piece is really stressful for a lot of family families. And, you know, we've tried to work with families even to be like, Hey, like we'll do an eval and give you a treatment plan. We don't have to write a report. Like 
Right. It's, you know, it's, it's this price if you don't want to report because you really just want an assessment from someone, you know, who's highly skilled, um, because we really rather get, make it more accessible and, and get more kiddos properly diagnosed and properly on the right track. And we know that the other follow-up services, if they do need ongoing feeding therapy, like it's, it's going to be, you know, it's a little bit of a punch to the gut. So <laughs> that's where like my experience coming from early intervention, really like this all read, that all resonates with me very, very, very strongly. And, and to be honest with you, you know, although I live in a more affluent area of my county, you know, in the Bronx, if I'm aiming to help families here, I need to be very, very mindful about cost, um, especially, you know, and like you said, different kinds of packages um, to provide the most support. Um, and there are, you know, there are still supports that, although you might not be working with a provider who's trained in TOTS, you know, you may also be benefit need physical therapy for torticollis associated with mm-hmm. it. So I'm always referring to the free services as much as possible um, because otherwise families are choosing to do nothing. Um, so we yeah. need some kind of kind of middle ground. Um, and that's really, again, where I got into this like education space and trying to motivate other people. Hey, if you don't want to make it a specialty, at least be aware of it so that you can refer um, out because I think that's what's happening is, is there's no awareness or no referrals happening um, and things are going unmissed for a long time. Yeah. Well, um, I think on that topic too, you know, cause I never, I'm always a big proponent of like charging your worth and charging for your expertise. And, you know, I'm not saying like discount your services to unfair levels by any means, because I really think that as providers, we should charge our worth every other practitioner and every other space is right. And I have seen, um, I have seen some Medicaid patients fight to get coverage for everything, the release expansion, body work. I mean, and so, you know, if you have families who really want it, and I always say, let the families decide, like never decide for them because the families are going to figure out what they value and where they want to put their money. And sometimes if there really is hardship, like I will refer to somebody who is in network that takes Medicaid, that takes their insurance. If, you know, like I'm never going to leave them hanging because they don't want to pay my, my private pay fees. I'm going to make sure I connect with a provider who I know has that skill set. And again, I understand also that's not always available in every city. So, you know, then, then in comes that, that consideration, but we also provide super bills and we give our families guidance on how to connect with your insurance and what questions to ask and what codes to call with so that they can get pre-approval. And it may be that they get reimbursed at the same rate that they would have if they'd gone in network. So there are so many ways that we can also help families and still charge our worth, which, you know, I think is like, I don't negotiate my rates, but I will offer. And when there's hardship, I will offer like SANS report, like, which means we're going to still write something up so that you have like all the basic information you need but we're not going to spend an hour or two, like writing this, like pair, you know, paragraph after paragraph explanation of everything that was assessed and all of the findings. We're basically going to say, Hey, here's what we found. Here's the functional impairment. Here's a recommended treatment plan, like real cut and dry. And, and arguably I'm trying to move towards that kind of a model in my practice anyways, because nobody reads long reports, but that's a whole different conversation. Well, it's time to write them. <laughs> Correct. Well, I, yes. I can't tell you how much time I spend on the phone sharing the CPT codes, um, because that's, that's my mindset too. And nothing changed that more in my practice than having to go through that as a mom, because mm-hmm. I wanted the most, you know, apt support from myofunctional therapists in my area. And guess what? I don't really want to pay those rates either, or really, <laughs> you know, it's not in my means to make this a consistent practice. So it was me fighting for those codes and what are those codes? And, and need to be able to, and not only for, you know, feeding for speech and everything, um, 
to be able to communicate that with the parents, with parents and understand what the insurance is asking for to help them. Um, and I don't think other, a lot of practitioners take the time to do that. Um, so I'm finding that, you know, that helps really build relationships and kind of is supporting my practice. So. I love that. I love that. And you know, and next I know you're in the bio membership, but you know, we have like a code list in there. Have you found that yet? <laughs> I'm sure you have all the codes anyways, but I like to give those like in feed the peeds too. We have a code list because yeah. you know, if you know those codes, which can be so tricky to figure out, especially if you're like in private practice for yourself, if you know those, like you can help your patients so much faster. And let me tell you the other, my other little secret is like, I created a PDF that has like the questions listed and all the codes. And so my assistant will send them this when we do an intake call. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, we don't have to spend like 10 minutes on the phone telling them and waiting for them to write it down. Right. Or sending like that fall. I used to send it in an email and it would just have all the codes listed in the like copy paste. And we were like, no, 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 there's gotta be a faster way. So now it exists in a PDF and we send them the, the guide and it's, it's a great little, a great little thing out with my intake forms. Yeah. That's yep. a really good exactly. Idea. Perfect. Definitely. We'll get on that. But yeah, so yeah. just kind of to transition, um, you know, going back to the social media for one second, one of the things yeah. that's really interested about, about where we are um, in New York City is, you know, obviously you want to refer to a release provider who knows what they're doing. And we have the opposite problem in New York City where Dr. Siegel is so well known. Yeah. Um, He's a little busy. <laughs> people don't, they go straight to him, which mm -hmm. of course, you know, he's, you know, referring out and things like that. But sometimes, um, we're missing that functional assessment. We're missing um, the pieces of the puzzle and the pre-op care um, that needs to be done um, because it's kind of trendy. Like in New York City, if you go on like the Upper East Side Moms yeah. group and you mention the word tongue tie, like he will literally get 150 comments in the comment section. And of course that's who did my son's procedures and yeah. um, wouldn't refer anyone else. Um, but yeah. it can be a little bit of, of a challenge in terms of, uh, getting that pre-op care that they need. Yeah. Well, and that's the same thing down here, actually. Um, a friend of his, Dr. James Ryan is our oral surgeon down here and it's the same thing. And, you know, there is, uh, there is Dr. Ryan, there is Dr. Marcus out in Reisterstown, there's Dr. Jaju in Virginia, you know, and others too, who have become very highly skilled in this space. Dr. Eric Armacon, like there's so many, options around here, which is fantastic. Of course, they're all in the dental space, which is amazing to me. I love that. Um, but it's the same thing where, you know, they go straight to the source and thankfully for the most part, you know, these, these individuals will refer for an eval before, you know, proceeding with the release. Now, arguably if a baby is like under four or five weeks of age, like and they go straight for a release because like time is of the essence and they're a newborn. Like that is the only time when I say, okay, we can, we can skip the pre-op, you know, eval and therapy. I would love to have an eval if possible, but I don't want to delay this. I'd rather get them in like ASAP. But like once they're past that, like fifth week or so of life, I'm like, okay, we really need to do, to not skip any of that pre-op. Like we absolutely need some pre-op stuff in place. Um, and I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about that point, but I have seen some babies like just kind of really just take off and really not need a whole lot of therapy when we get in there super early. Now, granted, they still need body work and they, but sometimes 
sometimes they kind of just figure out some of the feeding stuff when the tongue is functional and they're still so like, you know, how Diane talks about like the first 10 days of life. Like I was like, okay, I'm in on day 10. Like we're, we're good. Like it's okay. I'm not going to have any issues. I'm, you know, the whole other story, but you know, just goes to show it's not always, you know, the perfect, the perfect. And and Mia, like Mia went day five. And her feeding was glorious. Like it was night and day, but her body needed help. Like she was that kiddo where, and I have the cutest little videos of her. I should probably post one for people to see, but this is like more PT based, you know, more osteo based. Um, I took her to PT for quite a while and she was, you know, she was making progress. She was never really behind in her milestones, except she was a kiddo that dragged her back leg and back leg. Like she's got front legs. Um, she dragged, (laughs) she dragged her leg when she was crawling. And even like when going up the stairs in a crawl, she still was not using her leg properly. And you could see that there was like some tightness on one side, like both my kids had tight necks at birth. So at least I knew with her to get her into PT and get started with that. And so we were really keeping her on track, but I was like, you know what, this is not resolving what's going on. The person who I was going to was a fabulous PT but she wasn't really like in that whole like tots space. So I, I kind of took a break because she actually left the practice that she was at. I took a break from PT at that point and took her to a craniosacral therapist. Uh, and a week, and what was really cool was Mia was also a kiddo who like was very hot and always super sweaty. And they, she did some like Chinese medicine stuff and told me like what to do with like a gua sha stone or whatever, like on her back. And uh-huh. I'm telling you that kid's hotness like disappeared overnight. It was insane. I was like, like, it was like the heat was getting trapped in her body. And I was like, woo, this is cool. And, and then a week after that, I took her to osteopath because I was like, you know what I want, you know, I really want to like cover all my bases and they worked on her a bit too. And no joke, like within a week after that, those appointments, she got up and started walking and she was like, after she walked, she, then I watched her like crawl across the couch one day, like on all fours the right way. And I was like, oh, it's time for some champagne. Like this is a celebratory moment. And my husband was like, oh, amazing. He, she, he was like, why she already walks. Like, why do we care that she's crawling on all fours? I'm like, no, you don't get it. Everything's integrating. This is huge. Like, this is so important. And, and at that point, I think she was 13 months already. Right. So she had been crawling the wrong way all along wrong mm-hmm. way, quote unquote. And, you know, and so I think that's what we really need to be looking at. And then obviously she's three now, but we're still monitoring her mouth. We're still looking at like, okay, she has a nice U shape, but her molars are a little close together, you know, but she's a great eater. She's a great sleeper. Her mouth is closed at rest. And when sleeping, like she was kind of an airway kiddo in the beginning, just in terms of like RSV and croup. And that became viral induced asthma. And, you know, now with the pandemic, she's been home. So we haven't had any illness issues, but as she like re-enters the world, we'll see what happens. And so, you know, she may be going into early expansion, who knows, but for all intents and purposes, like she's a healthy kiddo right now. And, you know, and I chalk it up to all this work that we did in her first year of life. So anywho, I'm totally stealing the show here. Um, but, but let's talk more about like that pre and post stop care and like share with us, like what, why do you think it's important? Like, what do you work on when you're, when you're doing yeah. this work? Um, so I'll kind of go through it first as a mom and thinking about like, you know, so obviously I, I know we're going to get into this, but one of the reasons that we talked about um, me being here today is my son's uh, posterior tongue tie reattached. Yes. Um, so he did actually have a release um, almost two weeks ago now. Um, so noticing the difference, right. And 
an untrained kind of hand um, with no pre-op care um, versus somebody who now is trained in it, but also had pre-op care. Um, the difference in that process is very, uh, is profound. Um, so obviously, you know, you get these wound care instructions, um, you get them at the office. I recorded, I did everything I could think of to make sure I was doing it right. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in not only understanding how to do it, um, the wound care, um, but why? Um, and I don't always think that that makes sense to parents when they're in such a stressful state um, right after a procedure. Yeah. Um, even, you know, so I think that that's one of the things that I've found to be the most profound piece of kind of pre-op care um, when working with my families is on getting them to understand what's going to happen at the procedure and why all that afterward is um is important. And especially because a, it's a very, it can be very traumatic um, to have yeah. to do this, you know, to a baby um, more so to a five month old than a 10 day old, by the yes. way, who can yes. roll away from you. Um, and <laughs> like you, um, but these groups are, there's a lot of misinformation in these groups that are telling parents don't bother with the active wound care because um, you know, there's no research behind it or um, it won't, you know, we had it done and it didn't reattach and we didn't do any stretches or our doctor or dentist didn't tell us to do the stretches. Um, so I think that amount of misinformation um, that's out there again in these social media spaces is contributing to uh, parents just not being ready to, to take on that challenge and in turn not ready for the procedure. Um, and I think as a provider, being there ahead of time, um, you can use that to judge um, when it's the right time. Yeah. Procedure. Um, yeah. So like you said, obviously there's those cases where it's a, it's a you know, it's a necessity that it get done right away um, because it's, it's for, you know, health, overall health and failure to thrive and, and X, Y, Z. But I think there's a lot of value in making sure that that piece of it and that's just one piece right so right um but that piece I, is important yeah I think it helps also like I always explain to my families the difference between like active wound care and and stretches right so it's like okay we want to make sure that I always say that this feels long and strong and so we always I always want that um that wound, right. That open wound to heal. And I tell them like a long, like an upward direction. We don't want it to heal horizontally because then it kind of collapses and closes on itself. And we can actually heal and be tighter than we were before the procedure was done. And so while it may not look like it reattached, we don't see a frenulum there. Like that tongue can be more glued to the floor of the mouth than it was previously, just by nature of, of nature of how the body tries to heal itself that, you know, it's, what we do. Um, but I always like to kind of go through and say, okay, the active wound care is like the worst part of it, honestly. Right. It's like trying to get in there and lift that tongue up and back and make sure that we're, we're keeping that wound open and as long as we can. So it actually heals in the right direction, which seems counterintuitive. Why would you want to keep a wound open like longer, you know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, so that's where I love, like how our, my oral surgeon or dentist will come in and also like reinforce it. So technically they're the ones who should be giving the active wound care. Like that's not really even in a lot of our scope of practice. 
Right. Um, but we can, we can reinforce it and we can help guide them if it's been like assigned and discussed with that release provider. And so that's where I'll say, okay, I want to make sure that before you go for this, like, show me how you do it. Like, show me how you get in your baby's mouth and show me, because most parents, when you have them show you, they're like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm completely overwhelmed. Like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Am I going to hurt them? Am I pushing too hard? And I'm like, you are not going to hurt them. Cut your nails down, like to nothing (laughs) or have the person who does it, you know, therapeutic nail length. Um, and we work on that and I will do it in their mouth and I'll have them do it in my mouth and I will do it in the baby's mouth and I'll have them do it in the baby's mouth. I mean, because I want them to be so comfortable with that component. It's like, if they can get that, they can do anything. And then we'll go through like the other stretches that are really helped in helping to mobilize the tongue and increase range of motion and work towards, you know, our feeding skills and, and all that fun stuff. And, yeah. It, and oral rest postures and, and all the above. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it's, it's so if for nothing else, like even if you don't do pre-op therapy, quote unquote, which arguably I like to get the tongue and the oral structure is functioning as best as they can until we kind of hit a wall. And for infants, that might be like a couple sessions. Like it's not like this six months long of therapy. I mean, look, I have had kids come in it's, as infants where it did take a really long time because they were so you know, orally defensive that I would not want to be going into this kid's mouth right now and doing a procedure. Like we were going to send them off the deep end. Like this is not fair. We need to prep them. Right. So you don't know these things until we get in there the first time. And we actually see what we're working with. And I think there's just for people to send a child into any surgical procedure without without being, without preparing them or the family is cruel. And honestly, it, in my opinion, it should be like deemed malpractice. Like, (laughs) sorry. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm with you. And I think the education piece of it um, is really, so you mentioned like the diamond kind of closing uh, vertically and not horizontally. Like Dr. Gahari has that really good picture on his mm-hmm. blog. Um, and it's like a sketch, like with the stick figures, um, you know, but yeah. it is the most like powerful kind of image of showing parents, like this is what's supposed to happen. Um, the other thing I'm really, really big on um, is, and this is also because this ended up, you know, my son's case I ended up being an airway case also. Um, but like getting that lingual palatal suction, if you can get that before the procedure, you know, t- to the fullest extent, I think that also really helps with the active wound care. I'm a big, big proponent of Michelle Manuel's, you know, sleeping tongue posture hold because yep. you can visualize it. And I think that that's such an effective way for parents to stretch right or keep that wound open um without the trauma and if you can show parents how to do that um before a procedure and give them another tool so that they think or or that they know that they're having an impact on helping this procedure go effectively um it's it's a huge tool in the toolbox so but i have parents who um kind of do the procedure and then come to me right and they haven't achieved that or know how to get that suck beforehand um, and then it's you're working on that after and they're not you know that becomes a bit more challenging so I that's one of the things I really hone in on in my pre-op care I think is really important yes no absolutely and I love that and another one in Michelle's I'm a big proponent of her work too like one of her other exercises the guppy that's become very popular Mm -hmm. on social media um Michelle's got videos on on YouTube if you look up Michelle Emanuel guppy or Michelle Emanuel sleeping tongue posture hold uh, she, you know, it's, it's a really nice way to safely like 
put the neck into extension for a good stretch because things tighten up. Right. And so it's, you know, if we use gravity to our advantage a little bit and we can kind of dip, you know, the baby's head upside down a teeny bit that can also add to, you can actually kind of do them together, like kind of go into a guppy and then work on sleeping tongue posture hold, which I love. Um, but it's fun. Like, and it's even toddlers, they love it. They love being upside down. Most of them. So (laughs) you got to know your kid, but there's some, yeah, there's some really great things out there that you can do, but I will say, you know, YouTube is not a doctor or speech pathologist or OT or feeding therapist or any of the above. And so we definitely, you know, want to have individualized pre and post-op therapy because truly, you know, I get a lot of therapists even who say to me, well, what is your pre-op protocol look like? And I'm like, I mean, I have a general program per se in my brain of like what I'm trying to achieve. Like I know my outcomes and my goals, but the way that we get there looks different for every kiddo who comes through. Like there's no two similar cases. Do I share certain exercises across cases? Sure. But are they always the same? No, because not every infant presents the same way. And that's why we really need that feeding evaluation to know like, what is our baseline? Where are we starting? That way, you know, if a baby comes... (laughs) The worst part is getting that phone call. Hey, we just had a tongue tie release and we were told we need, you know, feeding therapy. And I'm like, oh goodness. Like, I don't know where you were starting. I don't know what your baseline is. And now you're going to come to me with like an open wound in the mouth and want to begin therapy and continue onward. Like it just adds an extra level of challenge because we don't know what the starting base was. So anywho, that's my little. Can I, can I pause this for one second? Yeah. It was just like a Anyway, so I think it's, you know, super important that we recognize that even if you're not going to need or go through a lot of pre-op therapy, we at least have that pre-op evaluation to establish a baseline. I think that's like totally crucial. And I totally agree with you. And I get that. I ask that all the time, right? So obviously we can't treat across state lines, um, especially having like a presence on social media, you know, we'll get these DMs all the time and I'm just constantly trying to help people and refer them to um, places where they can find help in their area. Because like you said, I can't just give you a PDF and say, um, you know, this is what you, this is what you need to do. That's not how it works. Um, And it's so, so important that somebody be there in person with the hands in your, you know, in your child's mouth to be able to um, assess their level of functioning beforehand. Um, We really want to make sure that we are understanding, like you said, like getting them to the absolute kind of point where they can't make any more progress before, um, having the procedure. So I think that's really important as well. Yeah, no. And I love that point you just made, because as much as we'd love to help the world, like actually our licensure prohibits us from doing that. So as much as we would love to say, Hey, we'd love to do a video consult with you or, and whatnot, like it's, it's not allowed. Like we can give you general information, but we can't actually give you specific information to your child's case or treatment plan if we're not licensed in your state. So yeah, it definitely is limiting in that sense, but thankfully I feel like there's enough SLPs and OTs, especially in the U S who are getting into this space with pediatric feeding. And one of my goals with my course was to create a directory where we could, you know, I can really, it's, it's selfish because I love connecting people. And I was like, I want to be able to be like, okay, I know these people have gone through my program. I know that they're educated. And if they've added themselves to the directory, that means that they do treat these cases. So while I can't vouch for like their treatment firsthand per se, I can at least tell you like they are properly trained and you know, here's who's in your area. And so my goal was really, you know, and when, and when people are not on there, I will go to like 
groups and ask like, Hey, who's in this area? And I, I joke, I'm like a connector because the last thing I want is for a baby to not get the help they need because we can't, they, a parent can't find somebody. Cause I think as, you know, feeding therapists, we have greater access to these groups where pediatric feeding therapists are hanging out and we can more yeah. easily find exactly. somebody and connect people. So it's so important. And like you said, I wish, um, there was like a, like a, a very, you know, everybody's not in every database and right. I wish there was right. a way to, to help merge, I don't know, merge. but there are some other, you know, like, like we talked about some other programs coming out, like health, uh, latch circle, um, uh, airway circle, you know, there, people are trying to really, um, help yeah. connections. And I think that's really important. So yeah, I'm glad to see it happening. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's where, you know, a lot of our graduates were talking about, like, you know, trying to connect to. And so I was like, all right, well, we're going to do this directory. And obviously it's not comprehensive. The program, let's see, Feed the Peas has only been out at this point for like 15 months. And we've had over 730, I think, um, SLPs and OTs go through it at this point. We're about to like reopen it again, which is awesome. So I'm excited, but yeah, so we, we did create pediatricfeedingtherapist.com, which is a directory for anybody who's gone through the course. And then that's, that is a place where you can start to look. And I always say, if you can't find somebody on there or in one of these other directories, like DM me, <laughs> DM me. Cause you know, the last thing I want as a parent to feel like they're kind of floundering and unable to reach the help that they need. Cause it is, it yeah. is out there and it is growing and you know, you might have to drive a little bit, but we can I try to put it on the bottom of, you know, and I do it to myself, you know, I get inundated with questions, but <laughs> yeah, it's so important. Like you said, cause again, as a parent, you don't want to be left, not, you know, seeing this information and wanting to get the help that you need and not be able to, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. So yeah. I'm always like, let us know if you need help finding, you know, finding a provider trained in your area. It's like my little tagline, uh, sign on. But, um, let's let's go back to talking about reattachment, because I think that is a topic that just is not discussed enough. And, you know, I know you experienced it firsthand as a mama. And so let's talk about, you know, obviously we've talked about the need for pre and post-op care, and that's a major reason why we might see reattachment. Um, but let's talk about, you know, reasons for it or, or how to even recognize if it's occurred. So I think, um, you know, so in my case as a mom, um, for me, the biggest um, thing was kind of a change in, in the amount of, in the type of function, right? So right away, things just, it seemed like my son was taking in so much more air again. And I just felt like we were right back to the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of reasons. And, and some people have reattachment that happens like right away, right? And because of kind of maybe poor um wound care after the fact, um, and it reattaches very quickly. And, you know, again, you think you had the procedure done, you think you fixed the problem, so it must be something else. Um, and things like that go unnoticed. Um, but it could also be, you talked a lot about um, your daughter with um, tension patterns in the body, um, especially with infants and babies working with this age, when babies go through growth spurts, um, guess when tension is happening. Um, and I think very much that that's what happened um, in my son's case. And all of a sudden, you know, it was right around that kind of four month mark. He's doing a lot more things. Um, and everything just kind of hit a wall. Um, and, you know, we, it's as a mom, you, and again, we go back to the, the dealing with the spouse situation. Um, you don't want to put you know, you don't want to go through it again. Um, and I think, and this is kind of going to go into our next topic here, but, um, you know, a lot of people 
are afraid of, of the procedure a second time, don't want to go through the stretches a second time, um, and also have some guilt around it. Um, and I know I did as a provider kind of in this space, like, how could this happen? You know, we did all the right things. We did the body work. We did the aftercare. We did the pre-op care. And it happens. And, and you know, everybody's body is different and there's tension patterns and, and things happen. And I think that, you know, the more that you can be aware of um, the benefits um, and how dramatic um, having is for overall development. Wait, hold on, um, hold on. Um, kind of say makes that it part. a little easier to go. Like I, like I cut out, I cut out, or one of the things that, at least you know, especially in my case, um, being aware of how crucial having full mobility of the tongue is for overall development and, and knowing everything that it affects, um, everything from airway to, um, you know, full movement of the body. Um, it really puts it into perspective. Um, but I think that it's so crucial that we stop this kind of guilt or mom shaming or, or worry around another procedure and really get the message of the benefit out there. Um, and again, um, we want to make sure that we're doing it at the right time and we're not rushing back into another release. Um, I've gotten families that, um, Oh no, oh no, it, you know, it's reattached. It's reattached. I need to go get it fixed again. And, and don't, and again, now we're setting up, you know, potentially for, um, it not to be successful this time around. So it's challenging. It's a challenging process. It's a stressful topic. Um, and there are lots of reasons why it's happening. Um, and I'm sure you can kind of touch on a few more of those, um, especially we talked a little bit in the beginning about the right provider, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, mean, are, I, yeah, I mean, I think that that's obviously important, but I also think we, we got to look at like our bodies heal differently and different people heal faster than others. Obviously like infants typically heal faster than, you know, older, you know, adults or, or peds, um, but you might even have one infant just based on uh, their anatomy and physiology and by, you know, and bio, all that fun stuff, you know, that their bodies just want to, I mean, our bodies want to heal no matter what. And, you know, my, my dear friend and colleague, Autumn Reed Henning talks about how we heal in her tots, her tots training course. Um, she talks about how, like, you know, during the first four days, like the body is just, it's like, we've got a injury, like an insult to the body. And we have got to close this back up. Our body's not meant to live in this like open wound space. And so it makes it really challenging because we're trying to direct the wound to heal the way we want it to heal. And our body's just going, I don't care how I close. I just need to close this wound up. And so obviously like things start to kind of like close in on each other, like the edges of the wound will start to close in and they will come back together in a way that's not optimal if we're not guiding it, which is why that active wound care is so important. Um, I've seen babies who have come to me who have had their first release and then like a couple of revisions and they're like nine months old or six months old. And they've already been through two releases and they're reattached. And, you know, you touched on the whole like mom guilt, mom shaming type of thing where as moms look, first of all, when we're anywhere in that first year postpartum, like our hormones are a freaking mess and nobody is talking about that enough. So, you know, every little thing that happens that like seems to go wrong, quote unquote, with our babies, like we blame ourselves because it's our job as our baby's protector to keep them fed, keep them healthy, keep them safe, you know? And if, if we're failing at one of these things, we automatically kind of go into this, like, shaming ourselves and feeling guilty. And then it, it's not, you know, it's enough that we're already doing it to ourselves. And then we basically enter into the world of 
Facebook or Instagram where everybody else is telling us what we're doing right or wrong. So, you know, I, I like to tell all of our moms, like deep breath, this is not your fault. Either you were not advised properly or you did the best you could with the information that you had at the time. And you know what? We can still make positive changes for optimal health and outcomes. Like let's work through this together. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is that if you can be that support for the family, that family member, whether it's a mom or, or a, you know, father or whoever is caring for that baby and taking them through this process, sometimes it's a whole family unit, depending on the culture and who cares for that child. You know, we really have to have everybody on board because, it's one of those things where if one person's not on board and that person spends nine hours with that child the day after they have a release, like that's just, that's not going to work. I'm sorry. Like we're, we're setting everything up for failure. So there's, there's so much that goes into this. And, um, there recently was a question on one of the groups that I'm in. It might've been in my own membership. It was like another colleague, a therapist and mama who was, whose child was going for a revision and even said like, it's planned for June, but I have the opportunity to do it sooner, but like, I can't be with my child the next day. So, you know, but in June I can like, do I move it up or do I wait two months? And I was like, wait two months, because this is going to be a stressful experience for both of you. And so our goal here is one, be prepared properly. And two, make sure you're doing it during the least amount of stress <laughs> in, in regards to like the events that are surrounding it. And you really want to be with your kiddo who's going to, you know, yeah. not that they're going to feel awful the next day. Some kids go back to school or daycare and they're like totally fine and their tongue sutured up and it's like nothing ever happened. And then other kids really need to cuddle a parent and just be, you know, have a quiet day on the couch afterwards while you're doing some of these active wound care stretches if sutures weren't placed. So, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but actually what's really interesting to, you know, that you said that and thinking about my own story. So we actually were battling some uh, food allergies and things like that. Oh, I personally have Crohn's disease. So I think it's more me than, than the baby, but, um, I went to a GI for him, um, who, you know, recommended that we do a two week trial of, of formula to see if the symptoms improved. And all I was thinking was, I can't not breastfeed him during this, the, the, you know, the wound care. Um, I said, there's absolutely no way that a for oral motor development, um, that I'm stopping breastfeeding, um, and B, um, you know, to not have that level of comfort for him. So it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because that was a huge piece for me. Um, so we created some workarounds there, but, um, (laughs) I, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, something that you need, you know, I've had parents say, I I have to schedule it around when I have time off from work. And, and that's absolutely the way that it should be. And, you know, you need support um, and get support for you. Like if you think that, you know, you're, especially when you have older babies who are super wiggly and it becomes a little bit more challenging to do the stretches, you know, get support for you. Um, Make sure there's somebody kind of hanging out with you um, to go through the process. It can be absolutely very stressful on the parents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think if you're feeling stressed and you're, you're really struggling with doing these at the aftercare and you have a child who's at least six months of age or older, I mean, my oral surgeon will suture or put a couple sutures in place. If you want to avoid the active wound care, that doesn't mean you get out of doing exercises. It just means you don't have to get in there and like elevate that tongue up in, in hopes that it's not going to close back on itself. And we're not going to have that reattachment. And I will tell, like, especially once the baby 
or toddler has teeth, it is extremely hard. Like some people, I know Autumn coined the term like no man's land for like the two, I think it's, yeah, that toddler age group, right? Like they're, they can clench that jaw shut and like, you're going to have to fight them. They can also bite you. So it is not fun to get in there and elevate a tongue on a toddler. And that I pretty much require along with my oral surgeon that like we place sutures in those toddlers because it is just such a more, much more enjoyable experience for everybody when they were well, to open their mouth. For kids with special needs who are like, you know, really developing um, or really developing poor health because of piggy eating or whatnot, because of how much pain they're in and, you know, they can't explain it. Yeah. Um, and who are definitely not going to tolerate the exercises. Um, yeah. You absolutely need to do that. So, yeah. That population has a special place in my heart too. So absolutely. Well, and I think that goes back to your earlier point that if you can work on these things pre-op with them, there's also less of an association that these are for that procedure. So they will be more willing to try it even when they go, Ooh, that pulled or Ooh, that felt funny. They might not do it right away. They might realize it doesn't feel okay immediately, but you're going to get a lot more success when you've already been working on these things pre-op for that post-op child who is healing and, you know, compliance increases it's not new. You're not asking them to do something new while they're uncomfortable. And it just, you know, again, the association of like, oh, well, this is tied to this surgery that I had, you know, it's just not there when you've been working on this pre-op. So there's a lot to be said about pre-op care. And I, I really think people who are ignoring it or advising against it, they're either not working with this population and they're just kind of reading the research, which is lacking. It's not there, (laughs) you know, it's, it's coming, but at the same time, this is a very challenging place, um, and population to, uh, to, uh, do research on. And it's really hard to say, well, these infants are going to get the procedure, but these infants are not, and we're going to give this one pre-op and we're not going to give that one pre-op and like, you can't, you can't can't do that. So we have to look at how there are five levels of EBP and that clinical practice with the specialists who are doing this day in and day out, you know, those are the people that we need to be listening to because they're living it firsthand. They're getting these kids results. We're bringing kids back to eating. We're getting these kids communicating. We're getting, you know, optimal health and function, which is the end goal. That is the end goal. So I'll jump off my soapbox, but (laughs) no, but I mean, I, everything that you're saying is exactly why I'm here. And, you know, I really grappled with whether or not to share my son's reattachment stories. Like a, it's like imposter syndrome. Like what am I doing? Like as a therapist, if I can't even like help my son. Right. Um, but, um, I can't tell you like the amount of people who kind of reached out to me and said, like, I think this is happening to me. Like I think I should get like some help instead of just say sitting there and kind of, again, like we talked about before, assuming that everything is well and good because they had the procedure, they did what they were supposed to do. Um, and they're not finding relief. Um, moms are not finding relief for their pain and babies are, you know, still going through reflux or, um, you know, colic, right? This, <laughs> the doctors are telling them they'll still, you know, grow out of it. And meanwhile, these babies are in distress um, for a fixable reason. So I'm all about kind of getting the word out there um, that while responsibly, we want everybody to be set up for success the second time. And again, circling back to that pre-op care, but not to kind of, you know, brush it to the wayside. So it's just, you know, that's my mindset. I'm, you know, First and foremost, I feel like I'm an educator and I want to spread the word. And I'm glad that we have the opportunity now to 
do ridiculous things like these reels that I've gotten hooked on. Um, They're so much fun. (laughs) Like not for anything, but it gets the word out fast. And, you know, we need to, you know, support that and back it up. But I think that in this crazy space where people are breastfeeding their kids with their phone in their hand and and just aimlessly in the middle of the night, trying to stay awake, we have a a unique space to share really important information. And I want to help that. Well, I love that. And thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for sharing your, your own journey and experience. You know, I think that the more of us that come forward and, you know, normalize a not so normal situation, it, it gives parents the opportunity to know what to ask, to know what, and maybe even to identify what's going on with their child. When so many practitioners have told them that everything's fine or just wait it out or, you know, like all these things that we hear, you know, I asked, um, I asked for everybody to answer one of those like little things on like, what, what's the most ridiculous thing you've heard about, like, you know, in relation to like your kids or one of your patients, like, you know, tots and to the rural tissues and the responses I got were amazing. And I'm going to go make some like, you know, reels with them. Cause why not? But that's, also like these, like you're saying, these are the things that parents are seeing. It's what they're identifying with, and it's really helping them gain education and empowering them to go out and find the right provider when they've been turned down by so many. And, you know, you and I have both been kind of in situations where we that's either happened to us or, you know, Hey, I was the pediatric feeding therapist who wasn't working with infants back when my child was an infant, my first daughter. And that was just a short five and a half, almost six years ago. Um, didn't know she had a tongue tie was told she was fine, told she didn't have one, you know, but, and it was my fault. Basically I wasn't holding her right during our breastfeeding journey. Um, 13 months of painful, horrible, like, you know, breastfeeding that I was like, so determined, like, we are going to do this because I also know this is really good for your (laughs) I am stubborn and we're going to do this, you know? And then turns out at 24 months, I come back from like my Mayo course and I'm like, um, okay, well, that's a pretty clear <laughs> lip and tongue tie that she was said to not have. So, okay, well, here we go. Here we go down this journey. So, you know, I've been there and I know so many of us in this field have been there and I think it's so powerful when we can share our stories and speak out. And I think more of these short stories, you know, need to be shared because this is what's reaching a lot of, you know, parents who don't know anything about this or who just have that colicky baby who's going to grow out of the colic. And we're like, yeah they're not growing out of it in a couple of days. It's probably more, more something else going on. So, so thank you. Thank you for sharing this story. Of course. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Um, you know, like you said, a soapbox, this is definitely my uh, soapbox. I just want, I just want everyone to get the support that they need. And that's how Absolutely. I Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Michelle. This has been awesome. Thank you, Hallie. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan, and you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 